0: Section 17 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 38, On the True Faith of a Christian, Part 1. When Mr. Disraeli became once more leader of the House of Commons, he must have felt that he had almost as difficult a path to tread as that of him described in Henry IV, who has to o'erwalk a current roaring loud on the unsteadfast footing of a spear. The ministry of Lord Derby, whereof Mr. Disraeli was undoubtedly the sense-carrier, was not supported by a parliamentary majority, nor could it pretend to great intellectual and administrative ability. It had in its ranks two or three men of something like statesman capacity, and a number of respectable persons possessing abilities about equal to those of any intelligent business man or county magistrate mr disraeli of course became chancellor of the exchequer lord stanley undertook the colonies mr walpole made a painstaking and conscientious home secretary as long as he continued to hold the office lord Malmesbury muddled on with foreign affairs somehow lord ellenborough's brilliant eccentric light perplexed for a brief space the indian department general peel was secretary for war and mr henley president of the board of trade lord nace afterwards lord mayo became chief secretary for ireland and was then supposed to be nothing more than a kindly sweet-tempered man of whom his most admiring friends would never have ventured to foreshadow such a destiny as that he should succeed to the place of a Canning and an Elgin, and govern the new India to which so many anxious eyes were turned. Sir John Packington was made first Lord of the Admiralty because a place of some kind had to be found for him, and he was as likely to do well at the head of the Navy as anywhere else. A ridiculous story, probably altogether untrue, used to be told of President Lincoln in some of the difficult days of the American Civil War. He wanted a commander-in-chief, and he happened to be in conversation with a friend on the subject of the war. Suddenly, addressing the friend, he asked him if he had ever commanded an army. No, Mr. President, was the reply. Do you think you could command an army? I presume so, Mr. President. I know nothing to the contrary. He was appointed commander-in-chief at once one might without great stretch of imagination conceive of a conversation of the same kind taking place between sir john packington and lord derby sir john packington had no reason to know that he might not prove equal to the administration of the navy and he became first lord of the admiralty accordingly no conservative government could be supposed to get on without lord john manners and luckily there was the department of public works for him Lord Stanley was regarded as a statesman of great and peculiar promise. The party to which he belonged were inclined to make him an object of especial pride, because he seemed to have, in a very remarkable degree, the very qualities which most of their leading members were generally accused of wanting. The epithet which Mr. Mill, at a later period, applied to the Tories, that of the stupid party, was the expression of a feeling very common in the political world, and under which many of the conservatives themselves winced. The more intelligent a conservative was, the more was he inclined to chafe at the ignorance and dullness of many of the party. It was therefore with particular satisfaction that intelligent Tories saw among themselves a young statesman who appeared to have all those qualities of intellect and those educational endowments which the bulk of the party did not possess, and what was worse, did not even miss. Lord Stanley had a calm meditative intellect. He studied politics as one may study a science. He understood political economy, that newfangled science which so bewildered his party, and of which the Peelites and the Manchester men made so much account. He had travelled much, not merely making the old-fashioned grand tour, which most of the Tory country gentlemen had themselves made, But visiting the United States and Canada and the Indies, East and West. He was understood to know all about geography and cotton and sugar, and he had come up into politics in a happy age when the question of free trade was understood to be settled. The Tories were proud of him, as a democratic mob is proud of an aristocratic leader, or as a working men's convention is proud of the cooperation of some distinguished scholar. Lord Stanley was strangely unlike his father in intellect and temperament. The one man was almost indeed the very opposite of the other. Lord Derby was all instinct and passion. Lord Stanley was all method and calculation. Lord Derby amused himself in the intervals of political work by translating classic epics and odes. Lord Stanley beguiled an interval of leisure by the reading of blue books. Lord Derby's eloquence, when at its worst, became fiery nonsense. Lord Stanley's sank occasionally to be nothing more than platitude. The extreme of the one was rhapsody, and of the other, commonplace. Lord Derby was too hot and impulsive to be always a sound statesman. Lord Stanley was too coldly methodical to be the statesman of a crisis both men were to a certain sense superficial and deceptive. Lord Derby's eloquence had no great depth in it, and Lord Stanley's wisdom often proved somewhat thin. The career of Lord Stanley did not afterwards bear out the expectations that were originally formed of him. He proved to be methodical, sensible, conscientious, slow. He belonged perhaps to that class of men about whom Goethe said that if they could only once commit some extravagance, we should have greater hopes of their future wisdom. He did not commit any extravagance. He remained careful, prudent, and slow. But at the time when he accepted the Indian secretaryship, it was still hoped that he would, to use a homely expression, warm to his work, and on both sides of the political contest people looked to him as a new and a great figure in conservative politics. He was not an orator. He had nothing whatever of the orator in language or in temperament. His manner was ineffective, his delivery was decidedly bad. But his words carried weight with them, and even his commonplaces were received by some of his party as the utterances of an oracle. There were men among the conservatives of the back benches who secretly hoped that in this wise young man was the upcoming statesman who was to deliver the party from the thraldom of eccentric genius and of an eloquence which, however brilliantly it fought their battles, seemed to them hardly a respectable sort of gift to be employed in the service of gentlemanly-like Tory principles. Lord Stanley had been in office before. During his father's first administration he had acted as Under Secretary for Foreign Affairs on the death of sir william molesworth lord palmerston had offered the colonial secretaryship to lord stanley but the latter although his toryism was of the most moderate and liberal kind did not see his way to take a seat in a liberal administration his appearance therefore as a cabinet minister in the government formed by his father was an event looked to with great interest all over the country the liberals were not without a hope that he might some day find himself driven by his conscientiousness and his clear, unprejudiced intelligence into the ranks of avowed liberalism. It was confidently predicted of him in a liberal review two or three years after this time that he would one day be found a prominent member of a liberal cabinet under the premiership of Mr. Gladstone. For the present, however, he is still the rising light, a somewhat cold and colorless light indeed of conservatism a raid against the conservatives was a party disjointed indeed for the present but capable at any moment if they could only agree of easily overturning the government of lord derby the superiority of the opposition in debating power was simply overwhelming in the house of commons mr disraeli was the only first-class debater with the exception perhaps of the new solicitor-general sir hugh cairns and Sir Hugh Cairns, being new to office, was not expected as yet to carry very heavy metal in great debate. The best of their colleagues could only be called a respectable second class. Against them were Lord Palmerston, Lord John Russell, Mr. Gladstone, Sir James Graham, Mr. Sidney Herbert, Mr. Cobden, and Mr. Bright, every one of whom was a first-class debater. Some of them great parliamentary orators, some too, with the influence that comes from the fact of their having led ministries and conducted wars. In no political assembly in the world does experience of office and authority tell for more than in the House of Commons. To have held office confers a certain dignity even on mediocrity. The man who has held office and who sits on the front bench opposite the ministry has a sort of prescriptive right to be heard whenever he stands up to address the house in preference to the most rising and brilliant talker who has never yet been a member of an administration mr disraeli had opposed to him not merely the eloquence of mr cobden and mr bright but the authority of lord john russell and lord palmerston It required much dexterity to make a decent show of carrying on a government under such conditions. Mr. Disraeli well knew that his party held office only on sufferance from their opponents. If they attempted nothing, they were certain to be censured for inactivity. If they attempted anything, there was the chance of their exposing themselves to the combined attack of all the fractions of the Liberal Party. Luckily for them, it was not easy to bring about such a combination just yet, but whenever it came there was foreshown the end of the ministry. Lord Derby's government quietly dropped the unlucky conspiracy bill. England and France were alike glad to be out of the difficulty. There was a short interchange of correspondence in which the French government explained that they really had meant nothing in particular and it was then announced to both Houses of Parliament that the misunderstanding was at an end, and that friendship had set in again. We have seen already how the India Bill was carried. Lord Derby's tenure of office was made remarkable by the success of one measure, which must have given much personal satisfaction to Mr. Disraeli. The son of a Jewish father, the descendant of an ancient Jewish race, himself received as a child into the jewish community mr disraeli had since his earliest years of intelligence been a christian i am as i have ever been he said himself when giving evidence once in a court of law a christian but he had never renounced his sympathies with the race to which he belonged and the faith in which his fathers worshipped he had always stood up for the jews He had glorified the genius and the influence of the Jews in many pages of romantic, high-flown, and sometimes very turgid eloquence. He had in some of his novels seemingly set about to persuade his readers that all good and great the modern world had seen was due to the unceasing intellectual activity of the Jew. He had vindicated with as sweeping a liberality the virtues of the Jewish race, In one really fine and striking sentence he declares that a Jew is never seen upon the scaffold unless it be at an auto da fe. Forty years ago, he says in his Lord George Bentinck, not a longer period than the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, the two most dishonoured races in Europe were the Attic and the Hebrew, and they were the two races that had done most for mankind mr disraeli had the good fortune to see the civil emancipation of the jews accomplished during the time of his leadership of the house of commons it was a coincidence merely he had always assisted the movement toward that end unlike some other men who carried on their faces the evidence of their hebrew extraction and who yet made themselves conspicuous for their opposition to it but the success did not come from any inspiration of his and most of his colleagues in power resisted it as long as they could. His former chief, Lord George Bentinck, it will be remembered, had resigned his leadership of the party in the House of Commons because of the complaints made when he spoke and voted for the removal of Jewish disabilities. It was in July 1858 that the long political and sectarian struggle came to an end baron lionel nathan de rothschild who has but lately died was allowed to take his seat in the house of commons on the twenty sixth of that month as one of the representatives of the city of london and the controversy about jewish disabilities was over at last it is not uninteresting before we trace the history of this struggle to its close to observe how completely the conditions under which it was once carried on had changed in recent years of late the opposition to the claims of the jews came almost exclusively from the tories and especially from the tories in the house of lords from the high churchmen and from the bishops a century before that time the bishops were for the most part very willing that justice should be done to the jews and statesmen and professional politicians looking at the question perhaps rather from the view of obvious necessity and expediency were well inclined to favor the claim made for, rather than by, their Jewish fellow subjects. But at that time the popular voice cried out furiously against the Jews. The old traditions of calumny and hatred still had full influence, and the English people as a whole were determined that they would not admit the Jews to the rights of citizenship. They would borrow from them, buy from them, accept any manner of service from them, but they would not allow of their being represented in parliament. As time went on, all this feeling changed. The public in general became either absolutely indifferent to the question of Jewish citizenship or decidedly in favour of it. No statesman had the slightest excuse for professing to believe that an outcry would be raised by the people if he attempted to procure the representation of Jews by Jews in parliament we have seen how by steps the jews made their way into municipal office and into the magistracy at the same time persistent efforts were being made to obtain for them the right to be elected to the house of commons on april fifth eighteen thirty mister robert grant then a colleague of one of the gurney family in the representation of norwich moved for leave to bring in a bill to repeal the civil disabilities affecting british-born subjects professing the jewish religion the claim which mr grant made for the jews was simply that they should be allowed to enjoy all those rights which we may call fundamental to the condition of the british subject without having to profess the religion of the state at that time the jews were unable to take the oath of allegiance passed in elizabeth's reign Although it had nothing in its substance or language opposed to their claims, inasmuch as it was sworn on the evangelists. Nor could they take the oath of abjuration, intended to guard against the return of the Stuarts, because that oath contained the words, On the true faith of a Christian. Before the repeal of the Test and Corporations Act in 1828, the sacrament had to be taken as a condition of holding any corporate office and had to be taken before admission in the case of offices held under the crown it might be taken after admission jews however did obtain admission to corporate offices not expressly as jews but as all dissenters obtained it that is by breaking the law and having an annual indemnity bill passed to relieve them from the penal consequences the test and corporations act put an end to this anomaly as regarded the dissenters but it unconsciously imposed a new disability on the jew the new declaration substituted for the old oath contained the words on the true faith of a christian the operation of the law was fatal says sir erskine may to nearly all the rights of a citizen a jew could not hold any office civil military or corporate he could not follow the profession of the law as a barrister or attorney or attorney's clerk he could not be a schoolmaster or an usher at a school he could not sit as a member of either house of parliament nor even exercise the electoral franchise if called upon to take the elector's oath thus although no special act was passed for the exclusion of the jew from the rights of citizenship he was effectually shut up in a sort of political and social ghetto the debate on mr grant's motion was made memorable by the fact that Macaulay delivered then his maiden speech. He rose at the same time with Sir James Mackintosh, and according to the graceful usage of the House of Commons, the new member was called on to speak. We need not go over the arguments used in the debate. Public opinion has settled the questions so long and so completely that they have little interest for a time like ours. One curious argument is, however, worth a passing notice. One speaker, Sir John Rusley, declared that when it was notorious that seats were to be had in that house to any extent for money, he could not consent to allow anyone to become a member who was not also a Christian. Bribery and corruption were so general and so bad that they could not, with safety to the State, be left to be the privilege of any but Christians. "'If I be drunk,' says Master Slender, I'll be drunk with those that have the fear of God and not with drunken knaves. The proposal for the admission of Jews to Parliament was supported by Lord John Russell, O'Connell, Broome, and Mackintosh. Its first reading, for it was opposed even on the first reading, was carried by a majority of eighteen, but on the motion for the second reading, the bill was thrown out by a majority of sixty-three the votes for it being 165 and those against it 228. In 1833, Mr. Grant introduced his bill again and this time was fortunate enough to pass it through the Commons. The Lords rejected it by a majority of 50. The following year told a similar story. The Commons accepted, the Lords rejected. Meantime, the Jews were being gradually relieved from other restrictions a clause in Lord Denman's act for amending the laws of evidence allowed all persons to be sworn in courts of law in the form which they held most binding on their conscience. Lord Lyndhurst succeeded in passing a bill for the admission of Jews to corporate offices. Jews had, as we have already seen, been admitted to the shrievalty and the magistracy in the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. In 1848 the struggle for their admission to Parliament was renewed but the lords still held out and would not pass a bill meanwhile influential jews began to offer themselves as candidates for seats in parliament mr Salomon's contested shoreham and maidstone successively and unsuccessfully in eighteen forty seven baron lionel rothschild was elected one of the members for the city of london he resigned his seat when the house of lords threw out the jews bill and stood again and was again elected it was not however until eighteen fifty that the struggle was actually transferred to the floor of the house of commons in that year baron rothschild presented himself at the table of the house as o'connell had done and offered to take the oaths in order that he might be admitted to take his seat for four sessions he had sat as a stranger in the house of which he had been duly elected a member by the votes of one of the most important english constituencies now he came boldly up to the table and demanded to be sworn he was sworn on the old testament he took the oaths of allegiance and supremacy but when the oath of abjuration came he omitted from it the words on the true faith of a christian he was directed to withdraw and it was decided that he could neither sit nor vote unless he would consent to take the oath of abjuration in the fashion prescribed by the law. In other words, he could only sit in the House of Commons on condition of his perjuring himself. Had he sworn on the true faith of a Christian, the House of Commons, well knowing that he had sworn to a falsehood, would have admitted him as one of its members. End of section 17